Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, the election edition. The Republican and Democratic parties have chosen President Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden as their respective nominees for the 2020 election. And in just two months, the American people will have their say on who will be president for the next four years. So we decided that now is a good time to look at the two candidates' tax plans. Here to talk about them are Tax Notes reporters Jonathan Curry and Alexis Gravely. Jonathan, Alexis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's always good to be here. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, before we get a look at the policies that are proposed, could you tell us a bit about some of the major policy changes that have happened during the Trump administration? Sure. I'll take you down a little trip on memory lane here. So with President Trump, really, it all kind of centers on the TCGA, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was enacted in 2017. And I mean, I think it's kind of fun to remember where that one started. If you think back to the 2016 campaign, Trump campaigned on huge tax cuts. I mean, like ludicrously huge tax cuts. The Tax Foundation pegged the the 10-year cost of the, that plan that Trump had initially to around $12 trillion. Obviously, that got whittled down a bit in the subsequent months. But, but clearly, Trump had some pretty ambitious requests. I remember one of them was a 15% corporate tax rate, and that would be coming down from 35%. Ultimately, they met in the middle at 21%. But at the time, I mean, that was a, a pretty big ask. A lot of the time early on, as the TCGA was being developed, it was spent trying to square Trump's desire for these extravagant tax cuts with a revenue-neutral tax reform sort of the gold standard of what tax reform should be. In the end, though, Republicans ditched that goal of revenue neutrality, and they instead went with a deficit-increasing tax plan that was ultimately scored at around $1.9 trillion. So it's sort of been interesting to see how the TCGA has played out politically since then. It's obviously a huge deal legislatively, and it was the biggest changes clearly to the tax code in a whole generation. But it hasn't necessarily been a huge political win for the White House. For a while, the White House tried to play out the idea of bonuses that were linked to the tax cuts that corporations were dishing out. But even that petered out after a while. The Democrats, of course, painted the TCGA as kind of a tax giveaway to the rich and corporations with just a small pittance left for the working class men and women of this country. So it hasn't really been a home run, but it definitely comes up in, in campaign rallies. Anytime Trump goes out on the stump, you'll hear him reference, you know, I cut your taxes, I lower taxes. And of course, painting Democrats as, hey, you know, they're going to raise your taxes. And so, you know, it comes up, but it's not really the big issue that was really going to sell the Republican ticket this year. Well, then turning to a major issue, over the last six months, the conversation has been dominated by discussion of coronavirus, and there's been some tax changes related to that. Can you tell us about, in part, this executive memorandum signed by the president recently? Yeah, sure. Preceding that, there was early in March, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. That was the first bill to kind of come around for providing coronavirus relief. That one created refundable tax credits to reimburse employers for the cost of providing paid sick and family leave if it was related to the coronavirus. The big one, of course, later that month was the CARES Act. And there's a lot of things involved in that. There was direct payments distributed by the IRS. There was the employee retention tax credit, the option for employers to defer their portion of payroll taxes so that they would could defer for the rest of this year and then pay half of it back in 2021 and half back in 2022. The big one was the Paycheck Protection Program that was created to enable businesses that are affected by the coronavirus keep paying their work, really propping these businesses up with these low interest loans that under the right circumstances could either be 
partially or, or completely forgiven. They also tacked on some smaller individual relief provisions onto that one, things like kind of like a, a measly $300 above the line charitable deduction for this year that I don't think really anyone thinks is going to move the line on anything. And there were some also retirement tax tweaks, things like allowing folks to tap into their 401ks early as emergency funds without being penalized for that, so forth and so on. But as you mentioned, the hot topic, this enigmatic payroll tax memo. I mean, I, I love this thing, frankly. It's just so fascinating to report on. There's a lot of background here. Can I get into that? Oh, absolutely. So President Trump has wanted a payroll tax cut of some sort pretty much since the beginning of time. It started more recently last summer. He wanted a payroll tax cut and it kind of went back and forth over the course of a few weeks saying, you know, hey, you know, I want, I'm interested in this. Maybe we might do this. We'll push for it. And then he kind of just sort of dropped it. But it was sort of a way at the time to give the economy a little jolt. As soon as the pandemic hit, you know, the first thing President Trump's turns to for policy is like, hey, let's get this payroll tax cut going again. Now, Congress, however, has not been very interested in this. They rejected it, including it in the CARES Act, and they rejected it again in the phase four negotiations more recently. I mean, to be clear, it didn't even make the GOP's wish list. The HEALS Act was the legislation they put forth for phase four. And those are often just kind of like a, a lot of provisions stuffed in there with the intention of, you know, you know, we'll cut this one, we'll trade this for that as sort of a negotiating tool. It didn't even make the wish list. So lawmakers really were not looking at this at all. And that kind of seemed like it would be the end of it. But then in early August, Stephen Moore, he's been a longtime advisor to President Trump, searching back to his first campaign. He's always kind of been in and around the White House. And he wrote an op-ed saying, basically, hey, why don't you just stop collecting payroll taxes using your executive authority and then pressure Congress to forgive this tax debt later? And literally less than a week later, when House and Senate lawmakers from Republicans, Democrats, they hit an impasse on phase four negotiations. And then boom, Trump has an excuse to play the hero and deliver some executive action. So on August 8th, he signed a couple memorandums, which were basically executive orders. And one of those directed Treasury to use its emergency authority to defer the withholding, deposit, and payment of the employee share of payroll taxes from September 1st through December 31st. Now, the payroll memo came with very few parameters to it. It's limited to employees who earn less than $4,000 on a biweekly basis. That comes out to about $100,000 a year. It says that deferred payments won't be subject to penalties or interest. And it also directs Treasury to come up with ways, maybe through legislation, for the deferred taxes to be forgiven. But I think it's safe to say only Congress can do that. And that's it. That's really all that the memo said. And it kind of threw the ball over to Treasury and handed it to them. It was like, here, now it's your court. Go do something with it. So ever since then, it's been radio silence from Treasury. And we don't really know how this will work still, at least as of recording this, August 26th. So just a few days out. However, I will add, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, he did say it would be optional for employers, which suggests that employers would have some way of opting in or out of this. And Larry Kudlow said a few weeks ago that it might be essentially de facto forgiven in the sense of that they would potentially stretch out the repayment period. Instead of making the, the payment due January 1st, 2021, they would make it due over a couple of years, five years, eight years, 10 years, something like that. I've since learned that there are some practical difficulties associated with that, but we'll see how that plays out. In the meantime, a wide array of business groups and associations have pretty much concluded that this deferral is a dud. I've seen a lot of accounting firms and these coalitions advising their members to not take Trump up on the deferral, saying it's not worth the headache. Uh, if you have a choice, just don't do it. So is it important that these business groups are discussing opting out of this deferral plan? 
Yeah, that's definitely important because a big part of the political calculus behind this memo was that if all these taxpayers are deferring their taxes, then that puts pressure on Congress to enact legislation that would bail them out to avoid sticking them with a major hardship at the end of the deferral period. Obviously, on the flip side of that, if few taxpayers or businesses decide to go along with this, then Congress can essentially wash their hands of this and say, hey, sorry, taxpayer, you should have known that we hold the power of the purse, not the president, though. We'll see soon how this starts to play out. It'll be interesting to watch. Now, Trump was just confirmed as the Republican nominee as we're recording this, and he recently unveiled some of his priorities for a second term. What sort of tax policies and goals did we see in that? Yeah, you're right. So he released this 50-point memo of bulletin points. There's not a lot to it, frankly. There's a couple of things on there that are sort of tax items. One is a Made in America tax credit, which we haven't really seen any details of. It's been mentioned a few times by officials, but they haven't released any details of what that would be. Under another section, he has something called tax credits for companies that bring back jobs from China, specifically. I'm actually not sure if that's the same thing as a Made in America tax credit. Again, we'll have to see. Another item on there is to expand opportunity zones. Those were included in the TCGA is one of the, the big items that Republicans like to point to because it was pretty much the only bipartisan provision in the whole Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And that one is, is aimed at trying to steer investment into lower income communities while providing tax breaks like capital gains and things like that. But again, these bullet points don't say anything about how they would be expanded, if it's talking about more zones, more generous tax savings, or, or anything like that. There's also an item about cutting taxes to boost take-home pay and to keep jobs in America. I presume this is income tax rate, but again, we don't know for sure. Trump has talked about at various times a tax cuts 2.0 effort, and I think they, they have talked about cutting tax rates for middle-income taxpayers and things like that. So we'll see what they come up with of that. Another item on there is to allow 100% expensing for essential industries like pharmaceuticals and robotics, what they say, who bring back their manufacturing facilities to the United States. Again, this is not fleshed out in any way, and we'll have yet to sort of see how this kind of interacts with the TCGA's existing full expensing provision. One thing that's, that's notable, it, it doesn't make any mention of making the expiring TCGA provisions permanent. The TCGA, the business provisions, most of those were permanent, while the individual ones were temporary, and most of them are set to expire at the end of 2025. And so at some point, Republicans and I guess lawmakers will have to reckon with what they want to expand or keep or modify, but this doesn't say anything about that. We've also heard some administration officials talk about lowering the capital gains tax rate down to 15%. We'll see what they do with that. All right. Well, let's turn to the Democratic challenger. Alexis, you've been following this. So what has Vice President Biden proposed in terms of tax policy? So one of Joe Biden's main talking points when he discusses tax policy is that corporations and the wealthy are going to pay their fair share. He mentioned this last week when he was accepting his nomination for president, and it keeps coming up. So what does that look like? Well, he wants to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. He also wants to increase that top individual income tax rate to 39.6%, currently at 37%. He wants to tax capital gains as ordinary income for those who are earning more than a million dollars. And then he has this corporate minimum tax that he wants to establish. And we don't have a ton of details about it, but it would be a 15% tax on global book income of $100 million or more. And these are just some examples of what he 
he's proposed, but he has quite a few proposals, actually, that are aimed at increasing taxes on corporations and the wealthy. And it's not only about these people and corporations paying their fair share, as he said, but it also helps to raise revenue for some of his other plans. Some of the taxes that he will increase on wealthier Americans will actually be used to pay for his health care plans. So then for the average American, well, he said he won't increase taxes for most Americans. And in his plan, he has a lot of credit to help people out. Honestly, it's like Oprah. You get a credit, you get a credit, you get a credit. (laughs) He's proposed expansions to the earned income tax credit, expansions to the child and dependent care tax credit, and he wants to make that refundable because it currently isn't. He's got credits for child care, credits for caregivers, credits for renters and buying homes. So really, this is all just to help support individuals and families in various ways. Now, Biden recently announced Kamala Harris as his pick for vice president. Now, she had her own presidential runs. We've heard some of her tax ideas. So can you tell us a bit about some of her tax proposals and how her stances might influence a Biden administration? So since Kamala Harris was picked as his running mate, we haven't heard a ton about what they would collaborate together about tax policies. But during her presidential campaign, we know that she was considered to be more progressive than Biden. And we can see that in the policies that she has proposed. Broadly, they have very similar ideas. And that's raising taxes on corporations and wealthier Americans and offering support for low and middle income Americans, but they tend to differ in some of the ways to accomplish that. So for example, Harris, she also wants to increase the corporate tax rate, but she would like to see it go back to that pre-TCJA 35% versus Biden, who, like I said before, only wants to raise it up to 28%. Also during her campaign, she proposed this tax on families making more than $100,000. And it's the time that was going to be used to pay for her Medicare for All plan. And I think it's safe to say that a proposal like this isn't really going to have much influence on the Biden campaign, especially because during the primaries, he actually criticized her for that policy idea. And then as far as the TCJA goes, Harris wants to completely get rid of it. And Biden is more interested in looking at it and keeping parts of it and repealing other parts that don't benefit low-income and middle-income Americans as he would like. So some of the areas where they have common ground, Harris also wants to raise the capital gains tax rate. That wasn't something we received a lot of details on during her campaign for president. So I'm not quite sure how close she and Biden are on that. But she also wants to raise that top individual income rate to 39.6% as Biden does. And then lastly, she has this credit that she's proposed called the LIST credit, and that stands for livable income for families today. And she actually introduced this as a bill of the Senate last year. But basically, it's a credit for low and middle income earners, $3,000 for individuals, $6,000 for couples to help increase their after tax income. And again, this is something we don't know where Biden stands on this, if this is something that he'd be interested in. But some people in the tax community are saying that this could potentially be helpful for helping Americans weather the economic effects that they've seen from the coronavirus pandemic. 
Now, Biden was recently confirmed as the Democratic Party's nominee at the Democratic National Convention. Did we learn anything during the convention about Biden's tax plans? So during the convention, we didn't learn anything new. We got these broad references to plans that he has released over the time that he's been campaigning for president. However, after the convention, actually this past Sunday, he said in an interview with ABC that he would not raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. Now, that stirred up some debate within the tax community on Twitter about whether or not that's actually true. Some people are arguing that as a result of increasing taxes on corporations and wealthy business owners, some of that burden is going to shift down to individuals. So if you were elected and these policies were enacted, we'd have to actually see how that distribution would play out. Now, one thing that I would like to note is that on August 25th, Senate Democrats released this climate framework, and it includes a lot of tax incentives as a fundamental part of making this framework work. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, he told reporters that they have the support of Joe Biden on this as something they would like to pass if the Senate flips in November. And so while this isn't one of Biden's plans exactly, it does give us some new ideas about how a Democratic-controlled Congress and presidency would use tax policy to help tackle climate change. Now that we've discussed what they've said they'll do, let's talk about some expectations. Jonathan, should Donald Trump win a second term in November, what do we expect to see tax-wise? I think probably one of the first things we should expect to see is Trump will see this as kind of a vindication of his executive action on the payroll tax memo. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see him really press his demand for lawmakers to forgive the deferred payroll taxes that are being pushed back by that memo. We might also see linked to that a push to forgive the deferred employer share payroll taxes that were part of the CARES Act. I haven't really seen anyone talking about this yet, and it's not really a big priority, but it almost like makes sense for them to tie those two together. But we'll see if that happens ever happens. Anyone really brings that up anytime soon. I would also expect to see more tax cuts proposed that are framed as kind of a coronavirus relief or a stimulus. For example, Trump has also pushed for a, a pretty robust deduction for meals and entertainment expenses to try to help hotels and restaurants and things like that. A lot of economists have said, no, 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 that's trying to stimulate the economy and get people to go to restaurants when we're trying to lock them down or you know quarantine them. Uh, but as this continues on, I wouldn't be surprised if he makes it more of a priority. We also might see Trump feel more emboldened by his reelection to do things like he's talked about indexing capital gains to inflation using executive authority. Uh, that would be a, kind of a legally risky move. It's something that was contemplated quite a number of years ago back in the George H.W. Bush administration, I believe. And they decided at that time it wasn't legal. There have been some scholars more recently who've said it's questionable, but they can potentially see a way for it. Others still think it's illegal. But it's been openly contemplated by the White House. You might not be surprised to see someone who's in Trump's position is saying, oh, well, I'm going to go get something done. So we'll see on that end. All right. Alexis, uh, the same basic idea. If we see a Biden presidency come January, what do you expect to see from policy and legislation? Yeah. So as I said before, Biden has quite a few tax increases in this plan. And depending on the economic conditions, really that's the tone for when and if those policies would be enacted. His campaign advisor, Jared Bernstein, has said that 
if he wins the election in November and takes office in January and we're still in an economic recession or trying to claw our way back, probably not going to be the best time to implement tax increases, even if it's only for corporations and wealthy Americans. And then as far as legislation goes, we most likely aren't going to see a big package focused solely on tax policy in the same way that we saw with President Trump and the TCJA. The thing about Biden is that many of his tax proposals are actually just part of larger plans focused on addressing specific issues. So, for example, Biden wants to double the guilty rate. Guilty is global and tangible low tax income. The rate's currently at 10.5%. He wants to up that to 21%. That's not something that we're going to see as a part of tax legislation. That's something that's a part of his Build Back Better economic plan focused on bolstering domestic manufacturing. And he's wanting to use that increase of taxes on foreign source income as a way to achieve the larger goal of bringing production back to the United States. Another example of this is his caregiver tax credit. So he has he's proposing credit for childcare and credit for caregivers. And again, that's not something that would be in a tax package. That's something that would be a part of a caregiver package. So a lot of these policy ideas that we're looking at in terms of tax are probably going to be implemented in increments instead of all at once. Well, that leads to my last question about the sort of more sort of practical matters of tax policy is what happens if in November we end up with divided government again? The event of a Trump win, we would look at the Democrats keeping the House or in the event of a Biden win, the Republicans keeping the Senate. Does that change how what policies we could expect? Jonathan, why don't we start with the possibility of divided government under a Trump administration? Frankly, I think there's very few things that Trump wants to get done that Democrats also want to get done. For example, all these issues that come up are quite polarizing. If you look at like, the payroll tax cuts, Democrats are viewing this as a sort of a mortal threat to the Social Security Trust Fund and Americans' retirements and things like that. Same thing on capital gains. It's seen as a giveaway to the rich and the businesses and, and things like that. These are the kinds of things that just drive Democrats nuts. I just don't really see a lot of room for compromise or meeting in the middle on that. They might be game for some bipartisan stuff on opportunity zones, but even that kind of seems like a tough sell at this point. There's been quite a few stories that have come out about these this program being used in ways where it wasn't really intended to. So if people are investing in certain areas, but it's not actually lifting people out of poverty, it's just kind of saving some money for people that are already going to make investments or things like that. A lot of it is anecdotal, but it's enough to kind of make it a little bit less attractive to a lot of Democrats, including some people like Jared Bernstein, who's a former economic advisor in the Obama administration. He's sort of taken a wait and see approach to this, and he was one of the initial big backers of Opportunity Zones. But we'll see if there's any room for a meeting in the middle on that. Other than that, I mean, in the absence of any real legislative way forward, I wouldn't be surprised to see Trump either threaten or actively take steps to do executive action, things like indexing capital gains to inflation or contemplating some other things like maybe another payroll tax deferral style memo that kind of requires Congress to cooperate at some point, but at least put pressure on them in the meantime. 
Alexis, what are the prospects for divided government under a Biden administration? We know Republicans are typically opposed to tax increases. So I think when those come into play, it could be very difficult to get those. And some of these policies have price tags that Republicans might not be interested in adding to the national debt. However, one of the things that the Biden campaign has really highlighted throughout this election season, and especially at the Democratic National Convention, is his ability to unite people and how his long career in politics and how his time in the Senate would really serve him well as president. And so, I mean, Biden, he's been on the Hill, he has connections on the Hill, and he knows how some of these things work. So it's possible that some of these policies that we wouldn't expect to pass the divided Congress could have somewhat of a fighting chance. I'm feeling optimistic among more moderate Republicans if Biden is able to utilize some of those skills and connections that he's been touting on the campaign trail. Well, this has all been fascinating. Alexis, Jonathan, thank you for being here. Yeah, really glad I could come on the show. Thanks. Of course. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now from her home is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Thank you, Dave. In Tax Notes State, Annette Nellen highlights a long-standing flaw with state sales tax systems. Doug Shepard traces the legacy of Ray Kamikawa with the IRS, the Hawaii Department of Taxation, and in private practice. In Tax Notes International, members of KPMG highlight the movement towards increased transparency and how that translates into additional compliance burdens. David Chamberlain examines the EU general court ruling in the Apple case. And on the opinions page, Marie Sapiri interviews Orly Mazur about being a pioneer in the area of tax law and technology. Roxanne Bland considers state actions following Wayfair. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief, Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Faye. I'm here with Tax Notes Contributing Editor, Ben Willis, to discuss the piece he co-authored with Jed Bodger, Biden-Harris's High Hopes for Mitigating Tax Rate Disparities. Ben's joining us from his home in Maryland. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little about your article? Sure, I can. And I like the way you said the title, Mitigating Tax Rate Disparities. That is indeed the focus. So when it comes to the Biden-Harris proposals, I think everybody has on their minds the increases in rates that they've talked about. And with the corporate tax rate being a huge issue, potential increase for up to 28%, it begs the question as to what other tax rates could be affected by their proposals. And we know that the decrease in the corporate tax rate led to Section 199A, which provided a deduction uh, of 20% for certain qualified business income. And so what this article does is it focuses on the potential for additional changes relating to tax rate increases, including that deduction and whether or not there will be a continuation or a goal of parity, which was the underlying congressional intent for that provision. And so we talk about, well, if the corporate rate is increased by 50% of the prior deduction from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, does that mean Section 199A is going to be cut in half? So it will 
provide some sort of semblance or is there really the need to keep the deduction altogether to achieve the parity that Congress was aiming for? So that's the primary focus of the article. We then expand a little bit on capital gains rates and how the Biden-Harris proposals focus on matching those rates with ordinary income rates for those in the extremely high income categories. And they also propose bringing that ordinary income rate from 37 back up to 39.6%, which was the pre-TCJA rate. And we just talk about how that can have a ripple effect and how that will impact choice of entity determinations. And we conclude by talking about net operating losses and especially with the CARES Act that just freed up a number of losses that were were limited by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We talk about some of the policies for limiting those losses in the first place and whether or not they would really put folks on economic parity with respect to their actual losses and income. And I think that was a little bit of an additional highlight just because they've also included a focus on the real profits tax inside of their proposals, which we're probably going to get to an additional article. But there's a proposal for a 15% minimum tax based on financial statements, and they're focusing on true economic income. It begs the question of the limitations based on fictional tax years that are created by the code and the limitations on those. So we talk about whether or not it's in line with their other policies to align the NOL limitation with general economics. I hope that answers your question. It most certainly does. Thank you. Can you tell us what you're planning on writing about next? Sure. The Biden-Harris proposals are pretty comprehensive, actually. I mean, they originally started off with repealing the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and they've been scaled back. Biden has been more moderate with respect to what the tax proposals would be, but there's certainly some focus on equality and minimizing disparities that have been a focus of his proposals. I think we're going to cover in future articles probably a part two and perhaps a part three on this series, analyzing the Biden-Harris proposals and what effects they could have on a number of other provisions inside the Internal Revenue Code. And so I talked about the 199A deduction and how some of their proposals could affect that. The capital gain rate change could have a massive ripple effect throughout the entire Internal Revenue Code. When you bring capital gains up to ordinary income rates, that's often the name of the game when it comes to tax planning. And there are a number of provisions inside of the code that are designed to eliminate shifting ordinary income to capital gain, which will no longer be as relevant depending on which income threshold they place that limitation at. A good example of that is Section 1061 that was enacted in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act with respect to carried interests. We mentioned that in passing in this last article that we're talking about now, but I could definitely see us expanding that analysis, seeing if it would really eliminate the benefit that private equity fund managers obtain by achieving capital gain rates on their services provided to partnerships. But also there's estate taxes as well. If all of a sudden you have capital assets that are being taxed for an estate, not only do you have their proposals with respect to increasing the exemption and eliminating the basis step up at death, but also just what results from that, which would lead to much higher taxes and at higher rates. And so 
I think that, as well as a number of the international provisions, will be high on the agenda for what could be covered in upcoming articles on Biden-Harris proposals. Can you tell our listeners where they can find more about you in this topic? Sure. Listeners can find me at Willis Ways In on Twitter. And if they'd like to email me, and I'm always open to questions and comments, they can find me at ben.willis at taxanalyst.org. You can find Ben's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Analyst, for more in-depth discussion on what's new and noteworthy in tax. Again, that's Tax Analyst with an S. Back to you, Dave. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxDo, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.